Well, once again, thank you for being here. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms. We're uh, continuing in a sermon series called The Invitation. The Invitation was actually born out of some conversations we were having with our teaching team. Some of you may know this, but uh, each Bethany church has a teaching pastor and we work together to collaborate on sermon series, to build sermons together. We preach unique sermons at each of our locations. But it's a collaborative way for us to approach the preaching and teaching one of the questions we kept coming back to, especially since we've, all of these, all of our churches have been really in this process of rebuilding since we've returned to in-person worship, has been, how do I grow? We have people who have been so hungry for community, so hungry to learn more about the scriptures, hungry to be invested in them. And by God's grace, that's a great gift to have at all of our churches. But how do I grow in my What are some of the pathways that we as a church would say, you know, there's a lot of different ways to grow in your faith, but these are things that can be really valuable and important to try to attend to. So we're attempting to answer those questions throughout this series, drawing mostly from the Gospel of Matthew as our reference point. Last week, Jonathan, the last guy started the conversation around this, did a great job with his sermon. Today we're talking about something that's a little bit more ethereal, but is super important as we think about how we grow. And that is the concept of identity. Identity. You have to be clear about who you are to know who you are becoming. One of my kind of great, not that I knew him, but I would say mentors in the faith is Dallas Miller. And Dallas always said, Jesus is very concerned with who you are becoming. Every one of you is becoming someone. You are changing. We are not static creatures. We are dynamic. And so you are being formed and shaped by things around you all the time. But what are those things that are forming and shaping you? How do you know when you're changing? It comes back to an understanding of identity. And so for me, it's helpful to kind of have an image to hang my hat on. So I'm going to talk uh, for just a moment about an image that's really helped me think about identity this week. That is gemstones. And I'm aware that there is a TV series about creatures called The Righteous Gemstones. I've not seen it. So if you've watched that, you're kind of laughing on your breath. I get it. Gemstones, valuable, valuable, valuable. The most valuable diamond ever sold was 57.3 million. It was sold in 2015 to a uh, Chinese billionaire to buy for his seven-year-old daughter. So if you're interested in that, you can find out more about that online. But as I was uh, turning 26 many years ago, I was dating this wonderful woman named Jill, who's now my wife, and I did not buy her a $57 million diamond. I bought her a slightly cheaper one from a jewelry store near where we lived at the time in Tacoma. And all of you who've been through buying engagement rings know this. You've learned about the three C's, right? You better remember what they are. Color, clarity, and carrots. Not the carrots you eat, but the carrots that are diamonds. And then I got to learn about these fun things called settings. The setting in which a gemstone is placed is so critical in jewelry. You can't just have a diamond rolling around on your finger. That's not going to work. Someone's going to grab that diamond from you. So the purpose of a setting is to provide security for that gemstone. This is the bezel setting. How many of you have rings in the room right now that have the bezel setting? You can just raise it up. There we go. It's a beautiful setting. There's nothing kind of uh, intruding in the view of the gemstone and the bezel setting. It's a lovely piece. This is a channel setting. I learned about this because I didn't know this. I bought my wife's engagement ring thinking to myself, this is the most expensive thing I've ever bought, but it's totally worth it. And then she told me, oh yeah, you got to buy me a wedding ring too. And I went, that wasn't in my budget. 
Give me a minute. And so we found a lovely channel setting that looks a lot like this one. Still holding the gemstone in place, but surrounding it, allowing it to kind of feature more diamonds in the middle. The last one is the prong setting. Who's got a prong setting out there? Do you have a prong setting? Yeah, there you go. Typically, engagement rings, wedding rings, they have the prong setting as the centerpiece and like a channel setting around the side. The prong setting is intriguing to me because this obviously is the most intrusive in terms of viewing the gem, but each of those prongs holding it in place so clearly serves a purpose. It's there to provide security. There's no mistaking the fact that you don't want that diamond to wander off. The prong setting, the channel setting, the bezel setting, these are the most common types of settings for jewelry, and they all provide the thing that is most needed, which is security. You need to have a secure setting because setting provides security. Setting provides security. You, as a person, are made the image of God. And God sees you as beloved, as beautiful, as glorious in His Son. Before you're even formed in the womb, the psalmist writes, God knew you. God crafted you. He gave you the eyes and the hair or the thinning hair and the teeth. Everything about you, God gave to you as a gift because you were beautiful in His sight. And He delights over you. And the setting in which he desires for your life so that you can display his glory to the world, if you are gemstone, the setting that he desires for you is what was revealed over Jesus at his baptism. Jesus lives into this in the fullness that every one of us desires. Jesus' setting given to him at his baptism provides the perfect security that he needs to achieve his mission. And every one of us needs to understand that our setting, how God holds us and delights in us, even with all of our sins and failures and flaws, that that is the firmest foundation for your identity that you could ever find. Think about it. There are many different ways we try to create our identity. We try to create our identity through our work. We try to create identity as, as grandparents. Okay, I'm going to be invested in my leisure and my golfing. I'm going to be invested in my grandchildren. I'm going to be invested over here in this nonprofit, which is all good. But the challenge is when life throws you a curveball, your setting can become flimsy. My dad, who I love and admire, who passed away in 2019, uh, his setting in many ways was his work. He was an attorney. And he studied hard, and he worked hard, and his goal every time he went to trial as an attorney was to know the case better than the other person did, the other attorney did. He wanted to master that case in such a way so that he would never have to face the feet in the courtroom. And so his setting was his work. His setting was his ability to be competent. And that worked for him until it didn't, until he got sick, until he was able to have the recall Every setting we can come up with will get flimsy on us and it will fail, except the one that we see expressed in Jesus' baptism. Because setting provides security. So I want to offer this outline to those of you who are note takers as we walk through this this morning. We're going to talk about the clash of identity that's in our text today. We're going to talk about what it means to be securely set, and then we're going to talk about next steps. 
So let's talk about this first one, the clash of identity. Where do we see that in the text? If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. There's two Bibles right in front of you. Matthew 3, starting at verse 13. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation because I like some of the ways that it uh, modernizes the wording. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. Never goes well when you try to talk Jesus out of something. I am the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? This is a clash of identities. John the Baptist has been introduced right before this in Matthew chapter 3 as someone whose goal, job it is, his life's ambition is to prepare the way for the people of God. He knew that Messiah was coming, and God gave him a clear vision for his life to prepare the way. Jesus' arrival was foretold for centuries to be such a big deal that it couldn't just land in people's lives without helping them get ready to receive it. John's job was to help people receive the message of Jesus. And Jesus comes into this scene where John is baptizing people as a means of preparation, and it's like the needle skips off the record player. And here comes Jesus on the scene. And John stops. And it takes his breath away to see this man walking toward him because through the power of the Holy Spirit, John knew in that moment who Jesus is. No doubt in his mind. And if you think about it, it makes sense. John and Jesus, they've been tied together since birth. They're cousins. Luke's gospel tells us about the power of the Holy Spirit kind of uniting their mothers through the birthing process. And so without saying it, John is saying this to Jesus. If you are the one, then I need to get out of the way. Therefore, Jesus, if you are coming to me because I am me, a sinner, if I am broken, if I'm in need of your rescue, then I don't need to be baptizing you. I'm in the wrong place. Let's flip the script. Like, this is not where I need to be. This isn't right. It doesn't feel right for you to be doing this, for me to be doing this to you, is what John's saying to Jesus. And I love this because John actually has the humility to admit who he is. John has the humility to admit, I am not the Messiah. He just got done saying this to the Pharisees right before this in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. They're asking him, are you the Messiah? Are you the guy? He's going, no, I'm not the guy, but the guy is coming. Understanding your identity begins with humility. The humility to admit you're not as big a deal as you think you are. The humility to admit, I might not know everything. In a Western individualistic context, that is heresy to admit that I might not know everything there is to know about myself. That there might actually be a God of the universe who says to me, I actually know you better than you know yourself because I made you, because I created you, because even the hairs on your head are numbered. Our world cannot get its head around this. It's a cornerstone of post modernity to say, I am the one who defines my identity. But biblical faith was never meant to line up with. Or Doesn't work like that. Understanding your identity begins with humility. John knows who's he, who he is not. Are you willing to say, I'm not the biggest? I'm not the most important person in my life. Try this. Next time you get into a casual conversation with someone, what's the first thing you start talking about? Is it your work? Is it your parenting? Often it's a point of connection with the person you're talking to, something you share in common. How do you posit yourself in that conversation? How do you describe your role at your job? 
I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people where it just feels like the same thing over and over again, where they're telling me, and then I had to do this, and then I wrote this program, and then I had this many people that I recruited, and then I had, and they're telling me all their statistics like I'm reading a baseball card, and I'm going, I'm proud of you. I, I think that's great, but can we talk? How are you really? How is your heart? How is your soul? Are we willing to admit that we need some humility to understand who we really are? And all the things that we would throw before others as proof of our importance might actually be getting in the way of who Jesus wants us to be. That they're becoming that setting for us as a gemstone that's just going to be flimsy in the end. It's not going to stand the same time. That's the clash of identity. Now let's talk about the most secure setting. I'm going to skip verse 10, 15 briefly, but we're going to come back to it. This is verses 16 and 17, where John and Jesus kind of come to an agreement. John baptizes Jesus. When Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw God's Spirit descending like a dove and alighting on him. A voice from the heavens said, This is my Son, beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. New Living Translation gives this a little bit more punch to it. A voice from heaven said, This is my, say it with me, church, dearly loved son, who what? Brings me great joy. He brings me great joy. Whatever gift you got for your mom today, let me tell you, your mom does not have joy over the gift. Your mom has joy over the fact that you are her gift. And you thought about that you are part of her life. That is the great joy. Think about the moments in your life. It could be with your mom, it could be with someone else, that have brought you great, lasting joy. Where were you when you first heard about Jesus and when you said, you know what, I can live my life a lot of ways, but I want to live it this way. Because that's the moment of joy. Or maybe you witnessed that. Maybe you walked with college students and seen them come to faith and baptized them in hot tub. Because I know Gary and Michelle have done that. And those are moments of great joy, are they not? Do you not get tears of joy when that happens? You better. You better check your pulse if you're not getting tears of joy then. The birth of each of my children was a moment of great joy. And every time you see a child be born, you know it's a joyful thing. Maybe when you met your spouse. Maybe when you found the person who became a healing relationship When were those moments of great joy in the church? In those moments, we get a whiff, we get a glimpse, we get the breadcrumbs of the great joy that God has over each of us. See, here's my contention. The great joy that God pours out over Jesus Christ, that gives him that security in his setting, is available to each of us. Because we are adopted. We are adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God. We are not equal with Christ. No, 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 no. But through Christ, the joy that is poured out over him like a river, like the Spirit of God descending upon him like a dove, make no mistake, that is an image for you and for me. Because of who Jesus is and what he has done. The setting that was afforded to him, that held him in place, you and I can live that way too. Under the Father's great joy. This was a big moment for me. I tend to be 
kind of a headier person, so when things touch my heart in my faith, it's a big deal. I know people come from different traditions where the emotions was more primary and then the head kind of came later. For me, it's been a lot of head and maybe not as much heart. But man, has God used this word to really soften me and deepen my understanding of how precious my adoption is in his son. What great joy he feels over me. Simply because of the gift that Jesus extended to me, and I was able to receive as a 17-year-old on a beach in Mexico. Where is that joy for your church? Have you let yourself feel it? Have you let yourself understand that you are beloved? That God speaks these words over Jesus and he speaks them over you. That he sees you as worthy of his joy. This is the key to understanding your identity in Jesus Christ. That you sit in the same setting as Jesus does. That that throng or that vessel, whatever you want to pick, that Jesus' security in the Father is yours and all the other things we can try to make our security, work, parenting, family, career, you name it, they're all good. But that identity is afforded you. You're invited into it with great joy. One of my favorite scripture passages is Psalm 18, 19. This is talking about God the Father. He led me to a place of safety. He rescued me because he was obligated to. He rescued me because at religious people, this is how it's supposed to work. He rescued me because I kept all the rules. No, 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 what does it say? He rescued me what, church? Because he, say it with me, he delights in me. He has a delight over you and over me. Did I deserve that? Did I earn that? No, that's not the gospel. But he delights in you. He is enamored of you, of your joy, of your satisfaction in this world. That is a loving father. That is whose delight is poured out in Jesus' baptism. And that delight isn't just great endorphins and a nice sugar rush. No, that delight is purposeful. This is where we talk about next steps. In verse 15, Jesus says to John, look, I know you don't want to baptize me, but this is how we're going to do it, okay? And John obeys him. And that delight of the Father is poured out in that moment. And you know what happens right after the baptism of Jesus, at least in Matthew's gospel? He goes into the wilderness. He faces one of his greatest trials. Maybe one of the greatest trials a human being ever faces. Forty days without food and water, which is where I would have said, I'm out. Like, four hours without food and water, and I'm out. Jesus endures forty days of this. He faces every temptation the Father can throw at, or excuse me, the devil can throw at him. And he triumphs again and again and again. And it wasn't because he pulled himself up by his bootstraps. And it wasn't because of a stiff upper lip. It was because this setting the Father afforded to him held him in place. Do you get that? That is why he was able to withstand that onslaught of the temptation. It is why he was able to face the arguments of the Pharisees, these religious people looking down their noses at him. It was why he was able to endure the garden of Gethsemane and the agony and then face the cross. And in our individualistic culture, we like to say, well, you know, he just had a strong character, and he you know, read a few self-help books and built himself up, and then he was ready for it. No, 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 no. The supernatural power of God held him firm, like the most perfectly designed ring would hold the most beautiful gems. And nothing, nothing could move that stuff. 
with it, each of us could live as Christ. With that firmness of character. You know, I got a bad performance evaluation, okay? I have some things I need to work on. It's not the end of my life. It's not the end of my world. It's not even the end of my life. I can keep going. I can endure because of this second that I have in Jesus Christ. I lost someone I loved. My marriage is struggling. Taking that setting is what allows us not just to endure, but to thrive. Because the Father's delight is continually poured out over us. Your setting will provide security. Your security is in Jesus Christ. Everything else will fall short. Everything else will fail. Every other prong that you try to build up around yourself will be broken. That would be your security. That would be our security. So how do we step into this? Well, we actually do what the text tells us to do. So in verse 15, John gives up. He says, hey, I'm not going to fight you anymore, Jesus. You're in charge. Come in and do what you want. So it begins with obedience. Actually, it doesn't begin with obedience. Let's go back. It begins with what John chose to do, which is to embrace Christ. To say, you know what? I give up. I have tried living my way. It has not gone well. I give up. Jesus, would you enter in? Would you take charge? Would you be the reign and rule of my life? It starts there. If you've not had that opportunity to be like, dude, are you doing that like preacher thing where you're like, come on down? We're going to pray over you. I'd actually love to pray over you if you've not accepted Jesus Christ because that's super important. And I'd love to have that conversation and help people admit and confess and repent and seek this security that only comes in and through Jesus Christ. I'd love to have that talk. The second thing we have to do is we have to listen to him. If John wasn't listening to Jesus, none of this would have played out. If he just said, I can't hear you, I'm over here baptizing, I don't want to hear it. There's no conversation. So listen, I need to get better at this. You know what the number one thing I think Jesus tells me to do is? Slow down. Slow down, Travis. Slow down. Pay attention to that person over there. Listen to what this person just said to you. Their heart's really hurting. Take time and sit with your children. Slow down. Anybody else have a problem with that? You don't have to raise your hand. It's okay. Listen to him. When he nudges you, when he maybe just pokes you a little bit, listen. And then the last thing, do what he tells you to do. John did what Jesus told him to do. In Luke chapter 9, the transfiguration, this, this powerful moment where the Holy Spirit is again poured out upon Jesus, the final words that the Father speaks over Jesus in that moment, same words of blessing that were spoken over him in his baptism, this is my son, the beloved, but there's one more thing that God says in the transfiguration. Listen to him. Listen to him. Do what he says. And my friend Dallas Willard would agree with this. Obey him. Know what he said and obey him. Those are the keys to your transformation. You want to unlock a new chapter in your identity? You want to unlock a new season in your life and in your faith? Listen to him. Listen to the scriptures. Get involved in a small group. Be a part of our children's ministry. You know how many, you know how many people come up to me and say, man, I taught a children's lesson. That lesson wasn't for the kids. That was for me. Oh my gosh, it's incredible, right? Because when we're around God's word, God teaches us, He shapes us, and we don't get to control it. It's an amazing opportunity for us, church, to consider 
doing what Jesus told us to do. It is that simple. Is it easy? But it is that simple. We're going to take an opportunity to do that now by coming to the So this table is not my table, it is not the table, even of Anglo and Presbyterian Church, this is the table that Jesus welcomes his disciples to join him. It is the table that he paid for with his sacrifice. And it is a table that is open to all who profess faith in Christ. Even just a little even if you're just mustard seed, crazy faith right now, you're welcome to this table. So invite you to pray with me, and then we'll begin our time with you. Gracious God, thank you for this word. Thank you for your baptism. Thank you for your delight. Your delight as people come to this communion table to take bread, to take juice, and not just eat it, drink it, receive it, but to seek the nourishment of our souls. We want to do what you told us to do. When you're with your disciples on the night that you were betrayed, you told them to do this, to have this meal together. So we want to do that. We ask that you would set apart these elements from their common purpose, set aside this time and worship, and use it for your glory. We ask in your great name. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, and he offered it to his disciples. He said, take, eat this bread. This is my body, broken. Do this. In the same manner, after supper, Jesus took the cup, and it would have been the cup of the covenants reminding these Jewish men of their roots and the promises of God, but then Jesus offered it to them a different way. He said, this cup is the new covenant. Something different. Life from death. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for each of you for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul, writing later on, reminds us that as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So I invite you in just a moment as you're prayerfully ready to do so. Beginning in the back, you may come down the center aisle and come forward and receive these elements. We have gluten-free elements here at the center, and they say gluten-free on them if you have any allergy concerns. And then our non-gluten-free elements are on the right and the left. Please take one and return to your seat. You're welcome to eat the bread as you're ready. And I invite you to hold on to the cup of juice. We will drink it together at the end of our time. The Lord invites you. The Lord may be beckoning. He may be whispering to you. Now is the time. Come and receive. Come and receive that setting, that security that you want. May it only be come. Come to the Lord's table. Prepare for the Lord's Let us continue.